Good morning. You guys doing okay? Good? Cold, hungry. Now we're in the middle of a fast. Uh, yeah, good to see you guys. So the good news is, I, I hope this doesn't sound like a bad thing to say. The good news is the, the, the fast is done Friday. So if you're doing the fast, uh, we ended on Friday. No one's excited about that besides me. Everyone's more spiritual than I am. Um, and at the end of the fast, uh, something we always do is you always do a prayer night. So I hope to see all of you Friday. We will be doing a big prayer night here. All of us come together, pray, pray for a bunch of different things. So I hope you come out for that Friday. That's one thing I had to tell you. I had it written down right here. The second thing I needed to tell you, I'm going to let you in on a, on a big secret in our church, and I wasn't allowed to do this until we were about to end 1 Samuel. So we make all of our own graphics. We make all of our own videos and all that kind of stuff. So one of our graphic designers, Billy, needed some inspiration on the images of Saul and David. Uh, if you've ever met Spencer Holloway, who works here, that's him right there. We took a picture of him, and that's, he's Saul. That's kind of a sad spot to get, but um, he was Saul. This is Zach who works here. He is David. Um, and I always assumed that the inspiration for Samuel up there was just kind of me. The older I get, my beard and my long hair just anointing people. So I just kind of assumed that was me. But no, if you ever meet Spencer or Zach, there they are. So that was the second thing I needed to tell you, which wasn't important at all. The third thing is this is our last weekend in the book of 1 Samuel, which means we'll be starting another book of the Bible next weekend. That will be the book of Galatians because I think we need a, a palate cleansing. And so um, we'll get into the book of Galatians. It's short. There's not a lot of complicated Hebrew words in it, which is, which is good for me. And I'm looking forward to it. I've taught about 36 or 37 books of the Bible. And for some reason, over the last 15 years, I have never taught Galatians. So we're going to teach that. We'll start that next weekend. So hopefully I'll see you for that. And that will be good. So last weekend, if you weren't here, Pastor Mike taught, he taught chapters 28 and 29. I was a little jealous of that. I was here. And chapter 28, I think, is one of the more interesting chapters in all of 1 Samuel. And the reason why is we're coming to the conclusion of the life of Saul. And if you haven't been here, Saul is the first king of the Jewish people. And Saul has taken the road of selfishness, the road of, of pursuing what he wants, right? Which a lot of people in society that do that nowadays and what we are seeing is, is the inevitable collapse of Saul. And in chapter 28, Saul has gotten so desperate, so desperate to hear what he wants to hear that he actually has an occultist, a medium, conjure up the, 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 dead, the dead prophet Samuel, conjure up the spirit of Samuel so he could talk to the prophet Samuel. And he gets some pretty bad news once he talks to Samuel, but we'll talk about that later. But Mike's whole point that I thought was really, really fascinating is that when we are on a road that is, that is divergent, divergent that, is, that is going the opposite way of God, our desperation can lead us to some pretty dark, disturbing places. We, we will go out of our way. I love what Mike said. He said, we will even seek affirmation from the devil himself as long as we get that affirmation. And it's very, very dark. It's very, very disturbing. And we saw that in chapter 28 in chapter 29, and as we're seeing Saul continue to go down this road of destruction, and we're going to see the end of that this weekend. We're going to do chapter 30. We're going to do chapter 31. We'll finish out the book of 1 Samuel, and um, it's a little bothersome. It's a little, it's a little sad. It's a little depressing, and what we're going to see is something we have basically been talking about the entire book of 1 Samuel, 
that there are two roads. There are two main characters that we follow in this book of the Bible. We follow Saul, and we're going to see the conclusion of his path today. And we have been following David, who is on a path towards God. He's not perfect, but he's on a path pursuing God. And so what we're going to talk about is something that we talk about a lot in this church. There are only two decisions for us. There are only two different things that we can decide to do. We can either follow ourselves and what we want, right? Our own desires, or we can lay down the idolization of, of self and we can follow the path of God. That's, that's really the only choices we have. And so we have to be honest today. We'll talk about this a little bit later. We have to be honest, which path are we on and which one are we going to choose to stay on? And we'll discuss that a little bit. Okay, so you should have a notes handout. Everything is on there. Everything will be on the jumbotron behind me. Uh, if you have the Experience Community app, click on Sermon Notes. You have everything right there, the scripture and the notes. If you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament. We're in the ninth book of the Old Testament, and we are going to do chapter 30 and 31, and we'll wrap this up and uh, we'll start in a New Testament book next weekend. Okay, all right? Good to see you. It's, uh, it's good to see uh, a full room. It's nice. And uh, though you may be sitting by someone that you don't know, it's good. You're family. So uh, you should get to know that person. It's really, really good to see a full house in church. As, as bad as society is spiraling down, we need this. So I'm glad you're here. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room this morning. We thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for HVAC and padded seats and a safe place to come and study your word, God. We're grateful for that this morning. I pray that you bless this church this morning, not just this church. We pray for every single church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those areas, God. And Father, we pray as we study your word and as we take communion later and as we worship God, that, that in some small way we honor you back and we make you proud and we bless you in some way, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's knock this out. We'll read a little bit, some interesting stuff today, and we'll go back and break it down. David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They also had kidnapped the women and everyone in it from the youngest to the oldest. They had killed no one, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam of the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David said to the priest, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? And the Lord replied to, them, to him, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. Okay, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, what has happened was this. David let fear and doubt creep in. 
He's got about 600 men with him, including their, their wives and their children. So we don't know exactly how many, but a pretty good, pretty good amount of people following him. What happened is David let fear and doubt creep in and David ventured into enemy territory, into a place that he shouldn't have been. So God had miraculously saved David, even though he had made some dumb choices, he had miraculously saved David from having to fight against his own people. And he was living in an area called Ziklag that was given to him by, by, by another king. He and his men and their families were there. They come back into that area and find out that another enemy of theirs, the Amalekites, had destroyed their entire town and they hadn't killed anyone, but they had kidnapped everyone. So God had graciously helped David out of another predicament, but now God places David in another predicament. Why? Because David still needed some character development. This is one of those really tough and not very comfortable truths about the Bible, that sometimes we are in adverse situations because God wants to develop our character more. Is that fun? No, kind of sucks, doesn't it, right? Sometimes we're like, God, why am I in this? And God's like, because I need to make you stronger, because I need to make you deeper, because I need to expand you and grow you, that sometimes we have to have those adversities in our life to make us into kind of the people that God wants us to be. So that's where David found himself yet again. And so again, David had ventured into a place that he shouldn't have been. A lot of people followed him into that place that they all shouldn't have been in. And what happens when we're in places that we shouldn't be? Typically something tragic happens. And that's what struck in this instance. So because of this, not only did David's men question his authority and his leadership, they were questioning if they shouldn't kill him. And stoning sounds like a bad way to go, right? A lot of people throwing rocks at you until you're dead, but that's what they were talking about doing to David. And what we see here is something that we talk about a lot in this church. And again, it's uncomfortable, it's not fun, but it's true. So we need to talk about it. That even if God forgives us of something we have done wrong, something that is sinful, there may, there may still be, and most of the time there is, consequences that we still have to pay. God forbid if, if you were to, if, to take someone's life and kill them, God can forgive you of murder. We know that because God forgives a lot of people in the Bible for murder, but there is still a consequence to pay for that action. You're gonna go to jail. Even though God has forgiven you, there is still a ramification for that consequence. And that goes for virtually every level of sin. So what do we learn from that? What we learn is that when we follow God and, and live a life where we're not sinning, I'm not saying we're gonna be perfect, but if we make a mistake, we repent for it and we strive to live righteously, not only does that help us in life, it may also help people around us in life. See, humanity is symbiotic. What I mean by that is, is one person's actions inevitably affect other people. We, we touch, if you will. So if we do something bad, that will have a ripple effect and will negatively affect other people around us. But if we do well and if we live well, that also has a ripple effect and it positively affects those people around us. So here David finds himself again, I love what the Bible says, an extremely difficult position. He is yet again in a tense spot. He is once again in a stressful and painful spot, but 
unlike the other times when he was in these kinds of spots, instead of taking it into his own hands and and trying to concoct his own plan and, and do what he thinks is best, what does he do? He does the right thing. And he summons the priest, he summons the ephod, which is the vest that the priest wore, and he consults with God. He finds strength in God. Now, here's the thing about faith. Faith in God is, is synergistic. It's a fancy, fun word. What that means is this. That means that, that though God enables our faith, he chooses us, if you will, we also have to choose him back to activate that faith. It's both things. See, a lot of Christians fight over things like they say, well, I believe we're all predestined. Well, I believe we all have free will. And the problem with this argument between these two camps is the Bible teaches both of these things. That God chooses us, yes, he chooses us, but we also have to choose him back to activate that salvation and that faith. And so what we learn from that is it is our choice to find strength in the Lord. God is a strong tower. God, God has strength for us, but we have to choose to be strengthened in the Lord. What that means is this. In this moment, David wasn't getting any affirmation from the people around him. No one was affirming him. No one was validating him. No one was, no one was telling him that he was on the right track. He had to get that from God. He had to strengthen himself in the Lord. That goes for you and I too. Now, wherever you work, right? More than likely, your boss doesn't come up to you every single day, rub your back and go, man, we are so glad you're here today, right? <laughs> if that is your experience at work, I'll take an application. I'd like to work wherever you work. But very few people get this like, hey, man, you're doing such a good job. We love you. We're glad you're here. What can we do to make sure you never leave? We want you to know your value. That, that just doesn't happen. Because humanity always falls short when it comes to, to validation, to affirmation, to giving us what we really need. So we have to go to God for that. We have to learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And that's what David did in this instant. So David calls the priest. He calls for the ephod. Again, that's the vest that the priest wore. And they inquire of the Lord, should we go after these people? And if we do, will we win? And God says, go after them. You will win. Now, I don't know if you guys ever think of stuff like this when you read the Bible. I don't know if David audibly heard the voice of God. I have never audibly heard the voice of God. I'm gonna sound contradictory. God has spoken to me a million times, but I've never heard him audibly. I have some theological reasons why I don't believe we don't audibly hear God all the time. It says in Revelation that God's voice sounds like the roaring of oceans and the crackling of thunder. Maybe that would intimidate us if we kind of heard the unadulterated voice of God in this life. Maybe you have heard it, but, but I have never heard the audible voice of God. But when we walk in a relationship with God, we do learn to start to hear him. Because of the gifts of discernment, because of the gifts of wisdom, because of a prayer life, when we repent of the sin that may be in our heart, that clears our heart and clears our mind to be able to discern and to understand what God is telling us to do. And God does speak in that still small voice, right? And he leads us. But the only way to distinguish that voice is we have to walk in a relationship with him. And so again, I don't know if David audibly heard God or not, uh, but he obviously heard something from God and he took the right step. So David and the 600 men with him went. They came to the Wadi Besar, it's a fun group of words, where some stayed behind. 
David and 400 of the men continued the pursuit while 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Besar. That's a dried up riverbed, by the way. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. After he ate, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, who do you belong to? Where are you from? I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite man, he said. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We raided the south country of the Carathites, the territory of Judah, and the south country of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David then asked him, will you lead me to these raiders? He said, swear to me by God, capital G, so they believed in the same God, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master and I will lead you to them. So he led him and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. That's 24 hours. None of them escaped except for 400 young men who got on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and the daughters and all the plunders the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the flocks and herds which were driven ahead of the other livestock and the people shouted, this is David's plunder. There's a couple of really important theological things that come up from this section that I just read. So here's what happens. They hear from the Lord, go after these guys, you're gonna be victorious. So 600 men set out they start to cross this ravine and 200 of them get so exhausted that they can't go any further. So they stay behind and watch the supplies, okay? Then the other 400 go out to pursue the Amalekites. Now they encounter an Egyptian slave who had been ditched by his Amalekite owner because he was sick. Now this, this, this Egyptian slave said, I will show you where these guys are if you promise not to kill me Obviously, they didn't want to kill him. They actually kind of, it sounds like a pretty appetizing little meal. Here's some figs, here's some raisins, some bread, some water. They, they get him up to where he's supposed to be. So obviously, they don't want to kill the man. But he says, swear to me, you're not going to kill me. And swear to me, you're not going to give me back to my master. And I'll show you where the Amalekites are. So they say, okay, deal. Now, this is important. Here's a big theological principle that we need to learn right here. When David found where the Amalekites were, okay, he looked down on all the Amalekites and the Amalekites were not paying attention to the world around them. They were eating, they were drinking, they were partying, they were celebrating because of all of the material possessions that they had. They had got all of these material possessions and they were not paying attention to the world around them. They were eating, they were drinking, and they were partying. And because they were careless and because they were not watching around at the world that, that was around them, it was easy for David to not only attack them, 
but to slaughter all of them, except for 400 guys who got on, I guess, some pretty fast camels, you know, we'll let the camel guys go, and, and <laughs> came in, and they easily slaughtered all these Amalekites over 24 hours. What in the world do we learn from this? We learned something that Jesus talked about. We learned something from the Old Testament that it says it a couple of times. It is this, when Jesus was asked, listen, Jesus was asked by his disciples, what will the world look like when you return? And Jesus said, people will just be eating, drinking, and partying, and I will come back like a thief in the night. He says, it will be like the days of Noah, when Noah said, guys, we have to take life seriously. It's going to rain. And what does it say? They were eating, drinking, marrying, just, just partying, doing their thing. Living life, listen to me, living life so flippantly that they're not thinking about anything serious. Let's talk about America for a second. Here goes Corey talking. This is where we live. <laughs> and we live in a culture that is very destructive right now. We live in a culture right now in the Western world, specifically the United States, that, that we do not take anything very seriously. We are, we are the generation, we are the nation that videotapes ourselves doing stupid dances as people are trying to get off the airplane, right? But we don't care that we're blocking everyone behind us because I gotta put this on TikTok later. We'll dance in the middle of a crosswalk, we'll dance when we're on our break at work, we'll dance in the bathroom. We're a nation that doesn't take anything serious about our life because we're too busy dancing. And now listen, I got nothing against dancing. My youngest daughter is on the dance team at her school, but we live such a flippant existence to where we're not looking at anything seriously. And the thing is this, however we live this life will determine where we spend our eternal life. And if we take our life so flippantly and we're not thinking about the future and we're not thinking about the serious issues that are in the world, there will be a price for that. This is why Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter five, be sober-minded, be vigilant, because you have an adversary, the devil, that walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. If we are a people that are just so consumed with stupid things, right? We've become a, a, a very frivolous, very, very flippant society. And again, I'm not against fun. I'm not against enjoying life. I believe that the Bible tells us to do those things. But if we're not taking our lives seriously, that goes to what Paul told a young man named Timothy. He said, pay attention to how you live. Pay attention to your life. Why? Because how we invest in this life determines our eternal reward or punishment. Now, this sober-mindedness is not just talking about inebriation. Yes, it is a sin to get high. It is a sin to be intoxicated. Why? Because it lets your defense down so the enemy can come in. That's why it's a sin. It is a sin not only to be intoxicated by drugs and alcohol, it is a sin to be intoxicated by affirmation. Because when we're addicted to little hearts or little thumbs, we're not thinking clearly and we relent on our integrity and the wall goes down. And the enemy can quickly swoop in, right? This is a great theological principle that we see right here. And we see it multiple times throughout the Bible. There is another great theological implication in the fact that David prayed to God. He listened to God. He obeyed the word of God. And what happened? Everything that had been stolen from him was restored to him. The Bible says that Satan is a thief. 
well, Corey, there's a lot of really, really rich people that you know are evil and do bad, so what do you mean by that? Listen, money is not the most important thing in God's economy. The important things in God's economy are things like love and peace and joy, things like security and contentment and fulfillment. Those are the things that God really wants us to have, and those are the things that the devil really steals from us. When we live in sin, our joy gets stolen, our peace and security and contentment and fulfillment, and these things get robbed from us. But when we are in a relationship with God, God restores those things back to us. And it becomes not just David's plunder, it becomes Corey's plunder, or Jason's plunder, or Sarah's plunder, or whatever the case may be. God restores those things back to us and shapes us into what he wants us to be. But we have to walk in that relationship with him, okay? Continues on. When David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left in the Wadi Besar, they came out to meet him and to meet the troops with him. When David approached the men, he greeted them. But all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone out with David argued, because they didn't go out with us, we will not give any of the plunder we recovered to them except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. But David said, my brothers, you must not do this with, the, you must not do with, uh, this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us. And he handed over to us the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. We will share equally. And it has been so from that day forward. David established this policy as a law and an ordinance for Israel, and it still continues today. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to his friends, the elders of Judah. Here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He sent gifts to those in Bethel, Ramoth of the Negev, and Jatter, to those in Aurorah, in Sifmoth, and to Eshtemoa. had to write that one down, to those in Reka, in the towns of Jeromulites, and in the towns of the Kenites, to those in Horma, to those in Borashan, and to Athic, to those in Hebron, and to all the places where David and his men had roamed. So here's what happens. 400 of the men go out to fight against the Amalekites and get everything back. 200 of the men stayed back because of exhaustion. They didn't want to stay back. They physically couldn't do it, so they watched the supplies. Now, the 400 men come back with David into the, the, the ravine, right, the wadi. They go back into the ravine, and, and David's happy because they got everything back. But it says a bunch of worthless men from the 400 said, well, wait a second. We had to go out and do this. We think we worked a lot harder than these guys who had to stay back. So we're not gonna give them anything that we got. We're not, they're not gonna get any of the plunder except for their wife and their kids back. They're not getting anything back. Now, David had exception to that. And David created a law. It was a policy that those who go to war will get the same kind of reward as those who stay back with the supplies, that everyone will be treated equally. Why did David do this? Because this is the heart of God. It says in Acts chapter 10 that God does not show favoritism. He looks out at humanity and, and, and does not pick favorites, that everyone has equal access to the benefits of God. 
So if we understand that all humanity has equal access to the benefits of God, that, that what that means is, is not universalism. What that means is anyone uh, or everyone is invited to be in a relationship with God. That doesn't mean that everyone's gonna take it, but God gives an equal opportunity to all people to have a relationship with him. If we understand that, we too should look at all people, regardless if they accept Christ or reject Christ, we should look at all people as valuable and made in the image of God. This is what David is saying right here. No, 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 wait a second. We're all in the same tribe. We're all gonna receive the same reward from this. And from that policy of equality comes a culture of generosity. Look what David says. All these guys come back and they'll go, I have worked so hard for all of this. I'm not going to give it to anyone else because it's mine. I worked hard for it. And David goes, wait a second. It's because of God that we have any victory in our life. It's because of God that we have anything good. So it's, it's, it's all because of God that we have been blessed at all. So here's the thing. As Christians, we are called to be generous with what we have. Why? Because God has been generous with what he has and we haven't earned it. But we live in a society nowadays, guys, and unfortunately, a lot of American Christians who will say things like, well, I, you know, I can't afford to give to foreign missions. I can't afford to give to the church. I can't afford to do that. Hold on a second. I got to take this text on my $1,500 phone. What was I saying? Oh yeah, I can't afford that. You want to go to Starbucks? And what we do when we lack generosity as Christians, we are in essence taking for granted all the things God has blessed us with. That's what we are. That's what we're doing. Christians need to treat people equally. Christians also need to be generous in their heart and in their actions. And when we treat people with equality, when we treat people with generosity, what we are doing is we are creating a policy of honor. Notice David didn't stop there. David sent part of the spoils to, to people in Israel, in Judah, south, south Israel. He gave it to all the people who helped him when he was running from Saul. And so what David did is David honored God first. And here's the thing. If we honor God first, there is no way to escape honoring other people. They are, they are married. How do we know that? The religious people came to Jesus in the gospels and they said, what is the most important thing that humans can do? And Jesus said, well, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That is the first commandment. But he didn't stop there. He said the second thing is very similar to the first thing, that you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. We cannot divorce the loving of God and loving of people. They are intrinsically connected. Those two things are connected, and we cannot separate the two. So David created this policy of equality, generosity, and honor. And what we start to see in David at this point is we are start to see we we start to see a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would come from the family line of David, and some of the things David was starting to do at this point were starting to foreshadow the things that Jesus Christ would do for us. David punished the guilty. David restored the innocent, not because of selfish gain, but because God wanted him to do it. In a similar way, Christ came to save and restore those who have been lost or, or those who have had things stolen from them. And Jesus also came to eventually hold all evil into account. And we start to see a foreshadowing of that in David, okay? We're gonna read a whole chapter right here. It's short and it's, uh, it's pretty dark. The Philistines fought against Israel 
and Israel's men fled from them and were killed in Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it. Or these uncircumcised men, that means people that aren't Jewish, will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all of his men, about 3,000 men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and occupied or settled in those towns. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among their people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. When the residents of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterward, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. It's a pretty tragic end. So in chapter 28, if you weren't here last week, I said this earlier on before we started the lesson, Saul had the spirit of, of, Sol, or, uh, of Samuel, the prophet, conjured up by an occultist, by a medium. And as they were talking, um, probably the most chilling thing you could ever hear is that the spirit, right, that represented a dead man, Samuel, looked at Saul and said, tomorrow you and your sons are gonna be with me. Not what he wanted to hear. Chapter 31 records the fruition of that prophecy, of, of, of what Samuel has said to Saul. And after Saul's sons were killed, and after Saul was wounded, severely it says, Saul looked at his armor bearer who was next to him and he said, kill me. Because if you don't kill me, not only are they gonna kill me, they're gonna torture me, they're gonna do awful things to me, so run your sword through me. It said that his armor bearer was terrified. This is your king, right? He was terrified to do this, so he didn't do it. So it says that Saul grabbed his own sword, put it on the ground, and, and fell on his sword. Now, this is kind of a common colloquialism. You've probably heard that before. I'm falling on my sword. A lot of people have no idea where a lot of these, these phrases come from. More than likely, this phrase came from this. A lot of people believe it was a Roman thing because the Romans, it was a common practice for them to fall on their sword in war if they thought that they were going to lose. But this was many, many hundreds of years before the Roman Empire was established. So more than likely, it came from this. So Saul kills himself by falling on his own sword. His armor bearer sees this, probably extremely grieved and scared, and takes his own life as well. Now Saul's suicide um, didn't just affect Saul. The loss of his life, the loss of this battle, led to mass uh, uh, hysteria. 
and all of the neighboring towns found out that he was dead and they all started to flee their towns. And what happened? Land that was supposed to be occupied by the people of God came in and was occupied by the Philistines, the enemy. And so it affected a ton of people. And then it gets even darker. It says the next day, the Philistines came out and stripped the slain. That would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of about 3,000 dead men. They go out and they take anything of value off of the bodies, right? So armor, weapons, you know, if there were sandals or shoes or, or, or whatever kind of boots they would wear, they would take all this stuff and, and they would use that later on. Not only that, uh, they put Saul's armor as kind of a, a, a means of disrespecting him in the temple of one of their goddesses, Ashtoreth. So they hung that in there as kind of a trophy um, in one of their temples to one of their goddesses. They cut off Saul's head more than likely because Saul was the king um, over David when David cut off the head of Goliath. So they cut off Saul's head and in another way of, of dehumanizing him and desecrating him, they take Saul's body and hang it on the wall of one of their cities. They take his head. It says in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, and they hang the head of Saul in the temple of Dagon. If you go back in 1 Samuel, remember the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple of Dagon and they removed it because Dagon kept falling down. And now they put the head of Saul in the temple of Dagon. You know what we learn from this? What we learn is this, sin, man, I hope you guys hear me this morning. Sin always dehumanizes us. If you study World War II, Adolf Hitler's main objective with the Jews wasn't just to kill all the Jews. If he wanted to just kill all the Jews, he would have lined them all up, shot them, killed them, buried them in the ground. Would have happened a lot quicker, a lot easier for him. Adolf Hitler's main objective was not to kill all the Jews, it was to dehumanize the Jews. It was to take away their humanity from them. That's what the concentration camps were all about. And this is what sin always does. What does this mean for us? Let's talk about pornography for a second. About 70% of men, about 45 to 50% of all women look at pornography on a regular basis. You know what pornography does? It robs people of their humanity. Instead of that being someone's daughter or someone's son, or someone's brother or someone's sister, in some extreme cases, someone's mom or someone's dad, that is a piece of meat, that is just flesh. We have robbed the soul out of that. We have dehumanized it. It's not just with things like pornography, it's things like um, unethical practices in business. When we lie on things or we rip people off or we steal from people, we're not thinking that that's someone that might be supporting their family because we're only thinking about ourselves. We dehumanize that person because it's all about the money. It's all about the greed. It's all about the possession. Sin always erodes our humanity. And when our humanity is eroded, we go to dark, dark places because people then have no value. Do you know why the devil is so hell bent on robbing you of your humanity? Because our humanity is made in the image of the creator God. And when you take away our humanity, you're taking away our connection to the creator. That's why sin dehumanizes you. That's why things like greed and unethical business practices and pornography and theft, that's why these things are so evil because it robs us of being people. And when we are robbed of being human, we are robbed of our image of the creator. That's what sin does to us. And that's what happened. That's what happened at the end of Saul's miserable life. Run me through. 
So even in the middle of all this darkness, though, we're left at the end of this book of the Bible with a, a, a little bit of hope, a little bit of a light. The people in an area called Jabesh heard about what had happened to Saul. And it says their brave men went out and they retrieved the bodies of Saul and his sons and they properly laid them to rest. They cremated the bodies, they buried the bones. It was a proper, respectful way to put them to rest. Now, why did they do this? Saul was a bad guy. Look at this, this is so good. The people of Jabesh remembered a time before Saul was evil and he actually helped them in a fight from, from uh, uh, being, being overtaken by the Ammonites. So out of respect and honor, even for an evil king, out of respect and honor, they repaid that kindness that Saul has once showed them. But the end of Saul's life was pretty bad. Here's what we see. If you have been with me for any length of time, man, I hope everyone is listening this morning. Man, the word of God is trying to speak to us so clearly today, this whole weekend. Saul's path towards inevitable destruction. You wanna know where it began? It began in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Do you know what the first brick that was laid in the path to destruction was? It was when God wasn't working as quickly as Saul wanted God to work and Saul took the situation into his own hands. Saul assumed that he knew better than God and he did what he wanted to do. That was the first brick that was laid down on the path to destruction. He thought that he could live his life and do things better than God could show him how to live his life. He thought he could resolve the problems of life better than God could resolve the problems of life. So what Saul started to do is he started to go down the road, the path of self. And when we go down that road of self, it manifests itself in pride, in greed, in lust, in jealousy, in addiction, in fear, in revenge. And the inevitable end of all those things is destruction. Why? Because humanity is incapable of fixing itself. Corey, what do you mean? Have we beat death yet? Have we beat hatred yet? I don't care how many Super Bowl ads you push out and how many nonprofits start. Humanity will never conquer hatred. Why? Because we're incapable. Humanity will never conquer death. You wanna know why? Because we're incapable. Humanity will never even conquer poverty. That's why Jesus said, the poor will always be with you even until I come back. Because humanity is incapable of even conquering things like poverty. We are incapable without the provision and help of God, we are incapable of saving ourselves. And our inevitable end is destruction. That is the road of self, is inevitable destruction. The other way is the road that David took. Now, was that perfect? No, it wasn't perfect. David was very imperfect. But the Bible says overall, his life was about the pursuit of the heart of God. Now there were times when David let fear creep in, he let doubt creep in and therefore sin crept in. But here was the difference between David and Saul. When he made a sinful mistake, David repented of that. And he said, God, I'm on the wrong path. Put me back on the right path. And because David humbled himself, he was forgiven of sin. He was empowered he was restored. And so here's the thing. We are also imperfect. We are Davids. 
We let fear creep in. We let doubt creep in. We let sin creep in. But if we will humble ourselves before God and ask God to forgive us, God will save us. Not just save us eternally. God will save us over and over again as this life goes on. I've been saved, but I've been saved over and over again. God has saved me from all kinds of situations. He changes us. He leads us. And we are invited, you and I, every single one of us. The Bible says it is not God's desire that any perish. It is not God's desire that any go down the road of Saul. So we are invited to go down the road that David went on, the road towards God. And David foreshadowed a lot of things about Jesus. He foreshadowed that that God looks at us and equally gives us the opportunity to follow him, that we live in the generosity of God, that we live in the honor. So in God's love for us, Jesus invites all of us to the table to trust in him, to benefit from the fruit of the Holy Spirit that we get when we follow Christ, to benefit from the, the, the giftings of the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we're in a relationship with Christ, that we experience the generosity of God. I'm not talking about shallow um, um, materialism. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about prosperity gospel. I'm talking about generosity that we get things much better than money, like peace of mind, like integrity, like joy, like security, like love. We get those things. God generously gives us those things. And in this life, we can anticipate the honor of being with God forever in paradise. We are invited to go on that road. The question is this, are we willing, you and I, are we willing to lay down the worship of self, to lay down the idolization of self? You and I live in a culture. If you look at your dollar bill and it says, you know, in God we trust, that's correct. It's just not the God that you're thinking of. The God that the Western world trusts is the God of individual. That's why we say things like my truth and your truth. Listen, how arrogant and audacious is it to say that me, one of 8 billion people on planet earth, that I can single-handedly establish truth? That's a very arrogant, audacious thing to say, isn't it? We say it all the time, don't we? Well, that works for you. It doesn't work for me because I'm so superior. We don't say it, but we imply it. We have idolized self. We have made ourselves gods. We've made ourselves gods, especially in the United States. The question is, are we willing to lay down that God, lowercase g, and follow down the path of the true God and trust that his ways are better? Now, if you're on the fence about that, I wanna ask you some very practical questions. How are the ways of mankind working right now? How are they doing? Well, Corey, we're getting better. By what statistic or fact can you show me? What evidence do you have of that? We're committing suicide in higher numbers than we ever have since humanity has kept a record of such a thing. We have more depression, hopelessness, and anxiety on record than humans have ever recorded in the past. We are more divided than we've ever been. We're more shallow and materialistic than we've ever been. We're in more debt than we've ever been. We are running ourselves into the ground. Why? Because we have abandoned the principles of God and we've picked up our own principles. Prove to me that mankind's ways are working. Show me a civilization that has, that has stood the test of time. Show me someone who has conquered death in the grave. So will we continue to lean on what is not working? Go back in history and look at history. 
Who has stood the test of time? Do we honestly think our path can save us? I rarely do this, but I'm gonna end with a scripture that, 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 that is from a different book of the Bible than what we studied today. Ironically, it was spoken by David's son. This is very important. I want you to read this. Solomon says, let your heart keep my commands for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Your neck is close to your brain, right? Tie them around how you think. Write them on your heart, your emotions, your feelings. Then you will find favor and high regard with God and with people. Look at this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Well, this is my truth. That is arrogance. That is foolishness. Do not be wise in your estimation. Fear the Lord, respect, revere, honor the Lord, and turn away from evil. It comes down to a very simple question. What path are you on? What path am I on? Is that path working? Will it work in the end? Have we been deceived and tricked that following self is going to lead us to anywhere good? Or are we leaning on the understanding of, of someone that sees all, knows all, understands all, is outside of, our, outside of our time and our understanding? Whose understanding, whose ways are we leaning on, banking on? It's a question that I think all of us in this room need to be honest with ourselves about this morning. Who am I living for, really? It's deep, it's heavy, it's hard. And God wants you to have a fulfilling life. Look at it, it says it. God wants you to have a full life. He wants you to live in well-being. He wants you to live in peace and joy, all these things. But in order to get there, we have to take our lives seriously. We have to know that we are more than flesh. We are more than sensations. We are more than, than fleeting feelings. We are more than what's in our bank account and what we drove to church today. We are more than these things. We have to understand this because if we don't, we're gonna go down a road that ends in a very bad place. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I appreciate you all so much. I appreciate you being here. Man, sometimes things are heavy, guys, but we, we, we live in heavy times. I'd like to challenge you this morning as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed that whether you take communion today or not, take a couple of minutes before you leave here and just, just talk to the Lord and be sincere and say, God, if I'm on the wrong path, please show me. And he will, he will, he'll show you. If you're in this room and you're not a believer or maybe you're a, a new believer, if you're either one of those and you have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here who taught last week. Any questions, Mike would, would, would love to talk with you, okay? We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, it doesn't matter. Please let us know. And then the last thing is all the way around the room where we see a lamp on a table and then the majority of these pillars in the middle of the room, there's bread and wine. And that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's communion. We invite all of you to take that as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of any sin that may be in your heart. If you decide not to take communion, please be respectful. Mitch will eventually dis, uh, dismiss us.
but take this time to talk to the Lord, okay? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. Lord, I pray that this morning we are all honest with ourselves and honest with you. And, and God, that we examine our hearts. Lord, what road are we on? Are we on a road of, of, our, own, of our own path, our own decisions, ourself? Or are we on a road that leads to you, God, and is led by you? God, I pray, Lord, that you just touch our hearts, God, that you protect us, be with us, protect our families, our marriages, our friends, our families, God. Lord, that you would just keep your hand on us. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. Keep your hand on everyone in this place until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.